Good morning. Good morning. How are you? It is good to see you. I'm grateful to uh, be here and to have the honor of opening up God's Word with you today and to uh, share with you again from the Gospel of John. There's so many great things that uh, we're going through through this study. Um, today it gets personal. Uh, it gets personal for me as we shift gears. Um, for the last few weeks, we've been, um, since Christmas time, we've been talking about God of the promise. Um, and the, uh, the idea that Jesus um, was fulfilling prophecy, he is the promised one. Um, but now as we've moved into the narrative, uh, we shift into knowing him as God of miracles. Uh, the signs and wonders and things that we see him do will now um, be the excitement and the, the, the focus of our attention uh, for the time we spend together. Uh, and miracles are a, a huge signature of the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll see him perform miracles over nature and we'll see him perform miracles over uh, disease and over people. And, uh, and no doubt um, there is a, a personal context that falls in as we shift into this, uh, this particular portion of Scripture because in our family we're praying for, um, for a miracle to be done in, in my bride and, and her cancer. And so uh, this is certainly one of those messages that, that hit home to me uh, as a point of personal privilege. Uh, this week, uh, my wife and I celebrated our uh, 27th year anniversary, so thank you. Very excited about that. May 16th, 1988, um, we were good friends and we became a couple, and uh, then we became best friends uh, and got, we were best friends, got married in February 18th, 1995, and I told my wife, I said, um, you know, we've been friends our entire life, and one day we're going to grow old and senile together, and we'll become new friends. <laughs> and so we'll just continue the trend of just growing in our friendship. So um, I'm just excited that I get to spend my life with uh, such a treasure and a wonderful person. Today, as we go into uh, this passage of Scripture, we're going to uh, encounter um, a gentleman who needs a miracle big time. And uh, the context of his miracle uh, may hit home with you personally. Uh, it has another connection into my family as his miracle is certainly uh, uh, significant in the life of my family as well. So let's just dive in. Uh, but let me pray first because I, I just want to ask God to help me navigate this passage. Father, I just ask, Lord, for your, your help today. Certainly a, a heavy message on my heart, um, but I've got all the confidence in the world in who you are. And uh, Lord, I know you're, that your word will speak not only to me, but to our, our church today as we open your word today. May, uh, may your word, Father, um, minister to all of our hearts and lives, challenge us today. May we adjust our lives to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context today, we'll start in John chapter 4, and uh, verse, starting with verse 46. Uh, and Jesus said, uh, he's now getting ready to return to a very familiar city the city of Cana, which is the town where he turned water into wine. So let's read it. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. He just left the Samaritan lady at the well, that situation. He spent a couple days there. Uh, we've seen Jesus now. Um, it's pretty cool. We've seen him work with um, Nicodemus. We've seen him with the Samaritan woman, and now we're going to see him encounter uh, an another gentleman. And so uh, here he comes. Now, there was a government official in nearby Capernaum, whose son was very sick. Continue to read. When he had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, 
who is about to die. Now, keep in mind the context, because you'll, you'll need to understand a really important context piece, because the next verse, we're not going to see it yet, but Jesus is going to say something uh, in the next couple of verses that's going to kind of strike us here, because um, Jesus is going to uh, say something that's going to come across kind of mean. And so I want you to kind of set your minds and kind of listen to what it is that the context of what's taking place is that last time Jesus was in Cana, he performed a miracle. It was his first miracle, you might remember, the turning water into wine. Pastor Corey did a video devotional on that topic. Uh, it was in your email box. If you didn't get it and, and you want to have a copy of it, uh, please send an, an, e an email to our office this week. We'll make sure you get a link on that. But it was one of his first, it was his first miraculous sign. It was our opportunity to see Jesus uh, over nature, moving water into, into another element. It was a really cool thing. But uh, word began to spread about Jesus' miraculous power. And, uh, and it became very famous to who he was. Of course, he left that area and went and did some other things. And now he's back. This is the first time he's back in that city uh, where, where he is now. Uh, everyone's excited to see him. And everyone wants to see him do something else, something new, something exciting, something extraordinary, something miraculous. And so Jesus is back on the scene. And not only is the city of Cana, of Galilee, um, all abuzz about his uh, arrival into town, but word is spread now to Capernaum. Capernaum is about 18 to 20 miles away, depending on how you travel, the route you take. It's not close. Uh, it's about six uh, hours away in travel from a human travel back in the day, you know, for their ability to travel. We didn't have airplanes. They didn't have airplanes or cars and those things. And so, but word had spread uh, over six hours away to another town about Jesus' arrival. This wasn't a text message that, that went out. This was, you know, word of mouth grapevine. Jesus, the information that he had, it was arriving in town had happened. And this government official had a very, very dire situation. His son was about ready to die. And his, he was in desperate need of a miracle. Now, just to have a little context of who this person was that is now approaching Jesus, he went and begged Jesus to come and heal his son. For the context of who he was, the, the, you would look to Bible scholars who would, would conject over who he was, and they would say that most likely this, this um, government official worked for Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas would be the Herod that you and I would grow to hate, and that was the one that Pilate would refer to um, for the sham of a crucifixion trial when Pilate didn't want to deal with Jesus. And, Pilate, and, and Herod would say, come on, do a miracle for me. You know, Herod Antipas would, 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 would seek a miracle from Jesus. You're that miracle worker I've heard so much about. Do something cool for me, you know. And, and so he was also the same Herod, Herod Antipas, that was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, Jesus, knowing um, uh, all the things, including uh, the, the past, but also the future, would understand very clearly um, that this person represents not just an individual who's going through a hard time, but he represents in large scale a, um, a very, very difficult character in the narrative of his life. And so, you know, here this man comes who has now um, dealing with a major crisis in his life, a man of very high standing, But this affliction that has hit him with his son has now leveled the playing field. 
And I think it's interesting that the weight of affliction seems to have a leveling effect on your rank and your social, your social standing, doesn't it? It, doesn't, it seems that with, no matter how important you are, or how wealthy you are, or how much social status you have, uh, when you go through a, a, a crisis, especially a health crisis or some type of crisis in your family, it puts us all on the same level playing field. And no doubt that's what was happening here for this man. His rank didn't seem to matter much in light of his great need. He was in desperate need. So much so that he would travel about 20 miles from Capernaum to Galilee in hopes that by the time he would get there, that Jesus would still be there. His son was so sick that it wasn't the fact that he was just, son was ill, that his son was on his deathbed. There, there was evidence because of the, if, if his son was able, to, if his son was just sick, he would have put his son on a, on a cart or something and would have traveled with him to take him to Jesus. But, but, the, but just by the context that he traveled without his son, it would tell you that his son was in a terrible situation. It, this means that the dad would have had to wake up first, uh, first light. He would have heard that Jesus was in Cana. And he, in first light, he would have left early in the morning, 6 a.m. potentially, as the sun was rising. And he would have hustled into town six hours into Cana. And he would have a conversation, meeting Jesus somewhere around the 12th hour. And then having this conversation with Jesus about the 1 o'clock hour, Scripture tells us, this man would have ran. Because how, how else would you go if, you're, if your son is dying and you're in desperate need in order to get help that you need, you just don't meander to someone who you think can help you. You, you hustle, you hurry. And you can imagine he was doing all he could to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. This man was in desperate need for a miracle. Have you ever found yourself in a desperate need for a miracle in your life? This story hits home for me uh, in multiple layers, but specifically in this context. Because in 1987, my brother died on February the 11th. This month, 35 years ago, my brother died. We, um, we were outside playing in the backyard um, on the trampoline. He was five years old. Um, I was a senior in high school. And um, the next morning, he just didn't wake up. Uh, he was sick. And uh, we left for church. And we came home, and he was still in bed, and my mom and dad took him to the hospital later to find that he had meningitis, that disease that catch, you know, that virus that gets people uh, from time to time. We didn't know anything about it. But I remember being in the hospital room in a very desperate time with my family. And, I can, and when I read this passage of Scripture and I think about the desperation of this man as he was begging Jesus to come and to save his son because his son was about to die, I don't have to think far back in my mind's eye to think about the desperation of standing there holding hands with my family, listening to my dad and my mom pray prayers, begging God to heal my brother in a miraculous way, as the doctor said, that he's brain dead. As we stood in this hospital room, I'm thinking to ourselves, is God going to do this miracle? Begging God to bring him back. We buried him on Valentine's Day. Tragically, God did not answer our prayer and provide a miracle. But the key thing that I need you to know, and it's so important to pay attention to as we get ready to find out what happens in his story, 
is that we cannot anchor our faith to God's performance of miracles. God is a God of miracles, yes, indeed. God has the power to do miracles. God used miracles here in the New Testament through Jesus' life to validate his deity, to validate his authority, to, to validate his, um, his messiahship, to, to validate uh, who he was, and, and all of it was wrapped up in his prophecies. And Je- Jesus, th- those, those were necessary for him at that point in time. And so you ask, well, are, are, are miracles still valid today? Do people, do, does God still provide miracles? Yes, he does. I believe he does. One of the greatest miracles is when you and I cross from death to life in our salvation. That is still a grand miracle. But you say, but, but, but yes, that's a spiritual miracle. But is there still physical miracles taking place today? Well, you and I don't have to look hard or we can read books and we can, we can find web links and we can find stories about people who have been miraculously healed or they have claims of, mirac- of miraculous moments. And boy, we, are, we celebrate and we get excited about those things. But what I've found in my studies and as I've researched this is that, yes, God has the power to, and yes, in certain circumstances, we do see God still perform miracles, but it is rarely for the individual that he performs a miracle, and it's typically when he performs a miracle, it is for his purpose and for his glory, a greater purpose and a greater glory that God is doing something in that situation that brings a greater purpose and a greater glory. Well, we pray so much that it's our favor and it's our fortune that God would choose us for that greater purpose and for that greater glory. But it doesn't always work out that way. But hear me clearly. It is so important that we do not anchor our faith to God's performance of miracles. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So what happens in the story? Here we got a bunch of Galileans all standing around. They want to see this miracle. This man comes up and begging Jesus to heal his son. Now think about this. This man is asking Jesus now to travel six hours with him. Jesus, you just came to this town, but I need you to leave this town and come with me now six hours away. I need you to heal my son who is is not going to make it unless you go with me and help heal my son. The Galileans begin to lean in and go, oh, is this a miracle? Are you going to do a miracle? What are you going to do? And here's what Jesus says. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, you've got to imagine, when I first read this, and I'm thinking to myself the context of what I witnessed as a child in that hospital room. And I read a sentence like this, I'm thinking, great, Jesus, are you a jerk or what? That's a really hard statement to say to this family. And if you don't understand the context of what you're reading, that's how you can be leaving yourself feeling as you're reading this. But that's not what he's saying here, in my opinion. And I have other scholars that would also support this because this statement, I believe he's making this not to the individual man, but he's making this to the Galileans in general in Cana. It's because they're all going, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? And they could care less about what this man was going through and more about their desire to see Jesus perform some miracle. And so Jesus doesn't feed into what they desire they want to see, but he does meet the need of the man. He's like, listen, all you guys want to see is miracles. All you want to see is me do something miraculous. Jesus wasn't intending to discourage people from asking for miraculous help, but rather he was trying to discourage a faith that was only seeking the miraculous. Did you understand that? 
It's not about just seeking the miraculous. That's what the people of Cana were trying to do. The mightiest miracles, Jesus understands, aren't going to change the hearts of anyone. The only way that we're going to have our hearts change is when we believe and the Holy Spirit changes us. And we can tell that Jesus isn't directing this question directly to the man. It's a plural question, by the way, when he's asking this in the original language. We can tell that he's not directing it to the man because the man doesn't respond directly back to Jesus with an answer to this question. The man goes back to simply say this. The, Lord, the man pleaded, Lord, please come. Come now. Come with me before my little boy dies. I need you to come with me. And Jesus says something that I'm sure he wasn't prepared to hear. He probably prepared into his heart one of two answers. I'll go with you, or no, I will not. Those are probably the two scenarios that he had played out in his mind. And if he says, no, he will not, I'll beg more. But if he says, Lord, he'll do it, if he says, he'll come with me, we will get like, we'll hustle right away. But then Jesus says to him this, go back home. Go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. And I think to myself, in just one verse, like, oh my gosh, John, how in the world did you just write in one verse such a heavy, heavy amount of just emotional thought here? It's huge. I mean, yes, it makes sense that Jesus, what Jesus would say would be succinct and basic, that would say, just go home, your son will live. How beautiful it is when we understand the miracle power of Jesus' words. Jesus has, doesn't have to be present in order to command a miracle. We know that he can say the words from where he is, and he can accomplish a miracle. That's how heaven and earth, that's how heaven, that's how heaven and earth were created, by God's spoken word. He created everything out of nothing. It is not illogical for us to think that God cannot do miracles with his spoken word. And this is what he's saying here. But what is so illogical and what's so hard for me to wrap my mind around is I just want to know what happened in this guy's mind in this part of the verse. The man believed what Jesus said and he started home. How did you reconcile that? Are you sure? Are you sure that's what you said? Are you sure I can go home? Are you sure you don't need to go with me? Are you sure this isn't exactly what I'm... Are, are, did I hear you correctly? You know? But the man believed what Jesus said and started home. And, the, and God's Word doesn't tell us what I'm getting ready to explain to you here. And you have to do some deductive reasoning in the language to try to process this. But you have to know that on the way to see Jesus, he had to have been going as fast as he possibly could, right? We talked about that. What parent in the room wouldn't, wouldn't stop for, I mean, you wouldn't stop for food or water if you didn't have to on your way to go get help for your dying child. But there's something about his speed at returning home that kind of interests me. Because it says in the next verse, watch this. It says, while the man was on his way, so he was on his way home, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked, the, he asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, well, it was yesterday, afternoon, at one o'clock, and his fever suddenly disappeared. And the man said, that was the time that Jesus said that your son will live. 
And he and his entire family believed in Jesus. You see, it was the next day that he runs into his servants on the way home. For a six-hour journey, potentially, for him to have left Jesus at one o'clock in the afternoon, he should have gotten back on the same night. But yet, he had a whole night's stay somewhere before he would meet these people still on the road, and they would say, your son's okay. We're coming on, we're on our way to tell you. There's something about his speed returning. You see, he ran to Jesus in fear, but then he returned. <laughs> this is so cool to me. He returns to, G he returns to his son with confidence that God had healed his son. And when he hears the news about his son's life, it not only strengthened his faith, but it actually brought faith to his entire family. Jesus didn't use any dramatic effects for his healing. Many people, you know, we want to see God do this miracle, and that, that's what they wanted to see him do, but sometimes God doesn't provide fanfare in a miracle. Sometimes he just does the miracle. And in this case, he provided a miracle that the Galileans didn't get to see, but the man got to see and his family got to see, and it radically changed them. Real faith does not require us to see a miracle. The miraculous power of Jesus produced greater faith in both the man and his household. He believed and his family believed. Now, we don't know the name of the man. All we know, he was a government official. But God's word does tell us the name of the son. Did you know that? You want to write this down. His name of his son, you look it up later, was Abraham Lincoln. No, come on. We don't know the son's name. I just, some of you are like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's how I deal with tens. Just enjoy that. Some of you wrote that in your Bible, and you're like going, I can't believe this. I just wrote Abraham Lincoln in the margin of my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll give you some white out or something later. <laughs> Verse 54 says this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did after coming to Galilee. What an incredible story. It reminds me of another story in Scripture, and it's in your Go Deeper this week. I want you to spend some time looking at it. It's in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus heals a Roman officer, a Roman officer's servant. And, and that was the famous story where the Roman officer said, you don't even have to come to my house. All you need to do is just say the word right, right here where you are, and it'll be done. Say the word from where you are on your authority. It'll take place. I want you to study that this week. In context of these two stories, parallel them together. Understand the beauty that took place there. And it's on God's authority. He has the power to do the miraculous. He still has the power to do the miraculous in your life today. How do we apply that? Can we claim miracles? We can get really weird in our theology if we're not careful here. But I want you to understand, is God still a God of miracles? Absolutely, 100% yes. There is nothing illogical about the possibility that God can perform miracles. Like I said before, he created everything out of nothing. 
So it's not hard to think that God can do miracles still in our time. God is a God of miracles. Unfortunately, the word miracle is overused, just like the word love is in our culture. The word miracle is overused, and in fact, actual miracles are seldom seen in our context today. Miracles that serve God's purpose and God's greater plan, we we don't see them as often, but they still do happen. And so we still need to pray and ask God to do the miraculous. But I think we're often too quick to attribute tiny little things in our lives as miraculous when they're not nearly miraculous at all. But God is the God of miracles. Should we ask for God to do miracles in our life? Yes. Will God do miracles in your situation? I don't know. I want him to. I want God to do a miracle in my family's situation. I pray that he will. I hope that he will. I'm begging him that he will. The greater greater question is, is your faith being anchored to the miracle or to the faith or to your faith? Because you can't anchor your faith to his performance of a miracle. Because if you do that, you will most likely be discouraged in your life in general. I don't normally get a chance to share, um, just for the sake of the confidentiality of my family, we don't talk much about my wife's situation. We'll share a little bit from from time to time, but it's appropriate as we go through this message because it's appropriate for me to talk a little bit about this, and and I would love for you guys to pray for us. But in April of 2020, my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, for those that are new to the church, and um, it was in multiple places in her body. The doctors had told us, uh, told me that day... um, to get our affairs in order. It was very serious. Um, It's by God's grace that we are still with my bride today. Uh, For the last year, she's been on a clinical trial, a very large dosage of clinical trial treatment. And uh, for the last year, it has uh, managed to keep the cancer really kind of at a net neutral, kind of a stable neutral. All the cancer places seem to kind of just kind of be a net neutral position. And as hard as that is for my wife to go through treatment just to stay neutral is tough, but we're grateful because it just gives us time. And we love, we love the fact that, you know, that we're just praying for God to do a miracle. But our last CAT scans just last week um, have shown that the cancer's begun to grow again, and that's bringing us a lot of concern, the doctor's concern. And so now it's time for us now to begin kind of making some adjustments and changes. And so we are praying very, very hard for God to do a miracle. And it's created another level of anxiety and tension within our family and me personally and everybody. But we're grateful for your prayers. And right now we live in two realities. That's what makes like, you know, I'm like when I'm shifting into this message, I'm like, God, really? Do I have to preach through God of miracles? Because I believe that God is a God of miracles. In our family, we believe that God is a God of miracles. But I feel like we live right now in a bit of two realities. We believe with full confidence, theologically speaking, and in our faith, that God is a God of miracles. 
But we also live in a reality of doctor's reports and doctor's visits every two weeks that we have to sit in front of doctors. A God of miracles that I can't see, but I believe him with all my heart. And doctors that I have to sit in front of who I don't like <laughs> and reports that I don't want to read and barely understand that are telling us a story that is not exciting and hard to see. Both of them are realities, right? And so it's hard to live in both of these realities and trust. And so we, as a family, are praying and praying and praying for God to do a miracle, and yet we're also praying and trusting God for his sovereignty and strength to get through, come what may. It's a very, very difficult place to be. In marriage, at our marriage night conference early this year, or last year, um, I was asked a question that I kind of bumbled through the answer with a little bit, and I'm, maybe I can do a better job explaining kind of the answer to this. It was asked, how do I disciple and lead our family to kind of walk through this? Because it's a very, it's a difficult thing to do, you know, and I'm, I'm blessed to watch my, my children. I'm, my wife has got such strong faith. I have to act like I have it together when I stand up here. And so how do, how do we reconcile that? How do we process that? And so for a while, I, I've kind of, um, I kind of feel like this cancer has kind of been like Russia staged up around Ukraine. It's just kind of been sitting there while Ukraine sits there and we kind of wonder, is anything gonna happen, right? For the last year, it's kind of felt like that. We're like, this is a dangerous situation. What's going to happen? Kind of moment. And all the while in our faith, I've been kind of reconciling with, you know, we're, we're trusting God for a miracle at the same time that if God doesn't choose to answer in the way that we pray he will, then we will shift over and trust in his sovereignty because that's the biblical thing to say. That's what church people like to say, that, man, we're going to pray for the miracle, but then we're just going to trust God if, it, if this isn't his will, right? Doesn't that make sense to say that? But I'm here to tell you that is not the right way to look at it. When we try to look at it from this way, we're going to trust God. And if that fails us, then we're going to shift over here and trust in his sovereignty. It's, it's actually a setup, in my opinion, for some disaster in your own spiritual walk. Because if all my kids and my entire family, me, Seth, Jada, Jordan, Jana, if we're all leaning on God, Jehovah Rapha, being our miracle-working God, and we place all our faith upon God in the area of healing, which we believe he can, but if all we have is our, all of our faith placed on that one attribute of who God is, if God chooses not to heal in the way that we pray he would, and that falls, there is a bit of a free fall moment that all five of us in my family have to fall through as we try to reposition our weight to thrust it over in this direction and hopefully land on his sovereignty. And we pray that everyone in our family is going to be able to make that shift. You see, that's a hard free fall that not everyone can make, recover from. But however, there's a better solution. This is what I'm leading my family to do, and this is the best way I know how to disciple you. I pray I don't ever have to walk this. I pray God has a miracle set up because I believe there's a great purpose and a great plan that he can accomplish through that life. But instead of us propping all of our faith on the one attribute of God, being a Jehovah Rapha, a healer, we place our entire faith upon all of the attributes of who God is. 
everything about who God is, is what our faith is leaning up against. If the verse in the Bible that talks about God being a healer, for some reason he chooses not to heal, our faith is not having to shift over onto something else, one of his other attributes. We are resting upon the full attributes, all of his attributes. And so if one of his attributes does not, does not prop us up, it is not the only thing holding us up. We cannot rest our faith upon a single attribute of God alone. We rest, upon our, we rest our faith upon all of the attributes of God. You cannot rest your faith upon just God doing the miraculous in this moment. If God doesn't show, through, show up and give me this job, then I won't believe him. If God doesn't get me out of this situation, then I won't trust him. If God doesn't heal me, then I won't this. If God doesn't X, then I won't Y. We can't put our faith like that. We have to lean all of our faith on the full counsel of Scripture and the full understanding of the attributes of God. We believe that He can heal. We pray that He will. And we trust in His sovereignty and the full understanding of His attributes if He doesn't. Oh, by the grace of God, may that not be a cup that our family has to drink. And I pray, and I don't know what you're going through, and I pray that you will see God do a miracle in your life. But hear today and understand today that God loves you and he is aware. And when God told this man, go home, your son will live. There was something in Jesus' words that simply said this to that guy. I hear you. It's okay. I've got you covered. And in your situation, if you can just hear that right now, I hear your prayer. I hear what you're asking. I've got you covered. That should give you some peace today. Along the way, God's word does tell us that we should be shamelessly audacious in our prayers. That we should pray with an incredible amount of persistence. Jesus tells us in parable after parable as he models what prayer looks like. He says prayer is like the widow that, that has in the unjust judge where she just like is relentless in her prayer and drives this judge crazy until the judge does what she wants her to do. Jesus says that, that prayer is like the friend that goes to his other friend at midnight begging for bread. And his friend's like, leave me alone. And then the friend's like, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. I need some bread. And his friend's like, finally, I'll give you bread. God is asking us somehow, and it's crazy, I don't understand, to literally, persistently be unrelenting in our prayers when we need something like this. So that's what we're doing. That's what you need to do. Your faith isn't tied up in that. Our persistence and fervency in our prayer is. But trust God. Oh, it's scary, isn't it? It's scary for me. It's scary for our family. Probably scary for you too if you're walking through it. You're not alone. Thank you for the privilege of being able to share. Thank you for trusting. Not trusting, but thank you for listening and for uh, respecting our confidentiality and the things that I can share today. I'm not blowing our phones up with more questions, but um, just understand that hopefully that gives you a good insight and know how to pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. 
Lord, we know and we believe that you are the God of miracles. No question. No question. Lord, I think back to moments in my life, Lord, where you were so powerful in your display of power in different moments in my life. Lord, I know you have the power and the authority to do the extraordinary. I pray, Lord, you will do the extraordinary with my bride. I know you have the power to do it, and we ask you to do it. We beg you to do it. Father, we thank you for the multiple prayers of people that are praying right now for her, believing with us, and trusting with us. Hear our prayers, Lord. And Father, for our church family that are going through situations that I don't know, I know that I have the microphone today and my situation seems to be important. But others are thinking to themselves, they're going through big things too, and I, I don't know what those are. But Lord, I pray you'll minister to them as well. Through my testimony and through this discipleship moment, God, may it encourage them. Even the darkest of nights, God, you can light it up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.